and welcome to this episode of the Ocean Decade Show, a podcast dedicated to guiding you down the yellow brick road of this global initiative to transform the ocean, housed within the American Shoreline Podcast Network family. My name is Taylor Gales, and I'm your host and tour guide on our adventure through the Ocean Decade. So we're rounding the corner on the first year of the Ocean Decade, which is crazy to think about since I started working on the Ocean Decade before it was officially launched, and now we're almost at a year in. I think this is probably what parents feel like. You watch something be birthed, and I know I'm going to get a lot of parents saying, how dare you, you've never, (laughs) this is not the same thing. But it it feels like academic and intellectual uh, birth over this past year and getting to watch the Ocean Decade grow up. It's been really cool. Um, And in addition to the Ocean Decade growing up, we're entering into what feels like year 3 million of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, which continues to impact ocean work around the world. But the the beauty and the challenge, I think, of ocean work duly is uh, that it's necessarily global in nature. Uh, we have one ocean and we're all working, uh, and we should all be working toward the same goals. That's kind of the, the point and the platform of this ocean decade. And this means a lot of weird hours for, <laughs> for Zoom calls and Google Hangouts across multiple time zones and even multiple days. Uh, and even after all this time, I still need to check my app and make sure I'm converting all my time zones and dates correctly. I really want like a bunch of clocks on the wall, like West Wing style that have all the different times in different places, which would be helpful for like right now. But then I still have to add and subtract for figuring out, you know, if I have a meeting at 9 a.m., what time is it and in, in name your place around the world. Uh, but the global nature of the ocean decade is particularly uh, impacting our episode today, impacting in a really positive way, because I really love when I get to connect with, uh, people doing fantastic ocean decade work around the world. Uh, as we're recording this episode of the ocean decade show across almost 3000 kilometers, 8,000 miles of the Pacific and across the continental U S reaching to both Guam and New Zealand farther than I've been in my young life, but hope to go maybe one day when quarantine is not a thing anymore. Uh, but because today's episode is all about islands and the role of large ocean states within the ocean decade. And the term uh, large ocean states, it's something that I only became familiar with in the past couple of years. Um, and it's really only been around for the past few years. The first time that I saw it documented in looking this up was in September 2016. Uh, by the president of Palau while addressing the annual Congress of the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, the IUCN. So the president of Palau declared his country not to be a small island state, which is, uh, I think, a term that maybe many of us in the ocean world have heard before, or even a small island developing state, another common term that I've heard in the past, uh, but instead a large ocean state. And the chief justification for doing so was the establishment the previous year of the Palau National Marine Sanctuary, which designated 80% of Palau's exclusive economic zone, EEZ. Remember, we talked about EEZs a few episodes back when we were talking about um, the role of the the global ocean and uh, the different areas. So go back and take a listen if you've forgotten about EEZs. Um, And so the Palau's exclusive economic zone, 80% of it, so uh, 600,000 square kilometers, was designated as a no-take area, entirely closed to fishing activities, so an area the size of California and the sixth largest uh, marine protected area in the world. It seems obvious why island states, these large ocean states, uh, with large exclusive economic zones would care about the ocean decade, especially in the face of climate change, which is disproportionately impacting these communities. Uh, But let's run through some facts and then we'll get to 
my guests who will speak much more eloquently and intelligently about this than I can. But I learned some of these facts thanks to the Global Island Par- Partnership website. So uh, thanks, Kate, in advance for that, which I'll introduce here in a little bit with one of our guests. Uh, so on planet Earth, when we're thinking about uh, islands, there's over 175,000 islands on Earth. Earth, which are home to more than 600 million inhabitants. And over two-thirds of the world's countries include islands. Uh, So the concerns of islands and considering island states uh, during the ocean decade, and just in general, it's not a novel concern or issue whatsoever. This is impacting countries around the world. Islands and their ocean represent one-sixth of Earth's total area, and islands support uh, many of the most unique and isolated natural systems, including more than half of the world's marine biodiversity. And I think these are things that a lot of us who know something about the ocean or think we know something about islands might intuitively think, but it's crazy when you put numbers to it. So seven of the world's 10 coral reef hotspots are in islands, 10 of the 34 richest areas of biodiversity in the world. Uh, but like I mentioned with climate change earlier, islands are also at a higher risk for the impacts of ca- climate change. They're these highly contained ecosystems in many instances, and therefore have a higher risk for extinctions. So 64% of recorded extinctions have been on islands. And because of the unique position many islands are in, balancing biodiversity and tourism, economic and environmental concerns, climate resilience and adaptation, um, they must be important voices during the ocean decade. Uh, So I'm really excited today to have two island experts with me uh, from two islands. Uh, You know, I'm recording this uh, from the, not the middle of the United States, but not very near a coastal area and on a continent versus I'm getting the real island expertise from the sources. So I'm really excited to go over the role of large ocean states during the ocean decade, including how these islands are showing global leadership by working to address the ocean decade goals, as well as the UN Sustainable Development Goals, while at the same time promoting the growth and development of their own local communities and stakeholders. So uh, Austin and Kate, thank you so much for being here today. Hi, Taylor. Half a day from Guam. Hi, Taylor. Kia ora from New Zealand. This is fantastic. Um, I don't think... I'd be interested to hear what's the farthest distance people have recorded for podcasts, but we might be setting some sort of close record, but uh, I think it's really amazing. So we'll go first uh, with Austin and then Kate going over who you are and what's your path been to the ocean decade. Thanks, Taylor. Um, Well, I'm Austin Shelton, and uh, I grew up on uh, the shores of the island of Guam. And um, I saw how things were changing in, in my lifetime growing up on a on a beach and uh, fishing and swimming and noticing that I wasn't catching the same size and quality of fish that I used to, uh, that the coral reefs were not as vibrant and colorful as they once were. And I think that's what um, inspired me the most to become a marine and environmental scientist. Um, I moved to Hawaii for a little bit to to um, get a degree in marine biology and a PhD with a, a marine bio specialization. Uh, and I came back home to Guam, where I now work at the University of Guam as uh, the, as an assistant professor and also the director of the Center for Island Sustainability and the University of Guam Sea Grant Program. Um, so I'm now all about um, the ocean decade and uh, advancing sustainable development goals uh, here in my home island of Guam in locally and culturally effective ways. Great. Thanks, Austin. Kate? So I... 
am really more of an expert on island networks and island partnerships, how we how working together to get things done. And I've worked extensively in the Pacific and lived in both Samoa and Fiji. But I spent the last 12 years running the Global Island Partnership. Mostly I was based in Washington, D.C., so I totally get um, the strangeness of interacting with people while based in a semi-landlocked space. Uh, but I'm actually now home in New Zealand uh, and I live across the road from the Pacific Ocean. So if I swing around in my chair, I can actually uh, see the ocean, which is, I think, been so amazing um, after 10 years in uh, the US. And I'm exactly, yes, no no oceans in DC. Uh, and, but really, I, I think what has really, I think my life's kind of come full circle and it kind of resonates a little bit what Austin was talking to, but um, I'm now living on our ancestral lands in New Zealand. So I'm indigenous New Zealander, a Maori. Um, and for us, um, kind of the ocean is incredibly important. Um, and in fact, in New Zealand, if I was introducing myself in a, in a traditional setting, the first things I would identify is the mountain I come from, the water I associate with, which would be this water, and the canoe that my ancestors arrived in New Zealand on from Hawaii about 600 to 1,000 years ago. Those are the most important pieces of information people want to know because it places you, um, it locates you. And so, you know, a little bit living away for a really long time, I kind of got into the, you know, a different way of doing things. And I've been back in New Zealand for nearly two years and have really... I guess, come full circle to rethinking and trying to reconnect with those really important cultural values um, that relate to the ocean. And this is really, I think, um, that underpinning is really why I've been working on island on islands and with island people, because islanders are really stewards of the ocean and they manage the ocean space. And I think when you work with islands and you come from an island, you really appreciate that you can't really separate what happens on land and what happens in the ocean. So, you know, we're very connected to that space. Um, also, obviously, as a place that supplies food and all of our, you know, important uh, ceremonies and things relate to food that comes from the ocean. Well, wow, that's so fantastic, both of you kind of talking about the full circle of things and how important it is sometimes to, you know, move away from the space where you were kind of born and raised to be able to better appreciate it and coming back. And so Kate, I was just kind of reflecting in my own head that, uh, you know, you identify yourself with the mountain range and water and I'm from Arizona originally. So even more landlocked than Washington DC. And so I was trying to think like, huh, I could do the mountain range part, but not the water part as easily <laughs> from my, my desert dwelling. Um, but I think it gives you a different perspective when you think about you know, not only where you live, but the history behind it, and then how you then take that with you as you move forward. Exactly. And I think uh, that that is, I think, for many Pacific Island people, and for many island people, kind of the underpinning the appreciation that we carry, we are doing things for future generations, and we're respecting the legacy of those that have come before us. Yeah, that's, uh, a super powerful way, I think, to start this conversation and to help kind of center things we're talking about. And this is a little bit tangential, but Austin and I kind of joked about this. Um, I first met Austin when I facilitated a panel earlier uh, this year in June 2021 on diversity in the ocean decade during Capitol Hill Ocean Week Chow. 
um, here in Washington, D.C. And we joked that this was his quote unquote audition for the podcast and that it went well. And so then we were going to have him on, but then uh, wanted Kate too to add some extra island knowledge and oomph. But Austin, why was it so important to you to be part of this conversation in regards to the ocean decade? Yeah, thanks, uh, Taylor, for uh, I'm really happy that uh, I was able to pass the audition to to be on the famous Ocean <laughs> Decade Show um, podcast. I uh, was really excited about that when we got to meet over uh, that panel back in June for uh, for Chow. Um, well, you know, that um, that diversity topic, I think, is um, particularly important to um the, the decade um, because uh, of the, really the vision for um, this this decade for um, sustainable development of the um, of ocean science for sustainable development because the the vision really of this decade is to um, embrace a participative and transformative process um, so that it brings a lot of people together. And to make sure that ocean science delivers for the greater benefits of both the ocean ecosystem and society. And so uh, I, I think uh, that I was really pleased when I was first reading about um, the the vision of the decade is that uh, like one number one on the item of the vision is to encourage more inclusive and participative approaches in designing and executing the science. And so for me as an islander, that means that um, we really need more islanders uh, to participate in the science. And uh, as as one of the very few uh, indigenous scientists here from Guam that um, that studies marine science and environmental science, um, I would like um, to to find more ways to to build up capacity in STEM and to uh, bring the knowledge that already has existed here for thousands of years into the conversation of the um, the ocean decade. Uh, you know, you did bring up um, the point about um, islands being fairly isolated from uh, the rest of the world. Um, but what, another thing that we've been uh, saying here in islands for a long time is that we were actually never isolated. We've had the oceans connect us for millennia. And this, um, uh, you know, we have traditional navigators that are, are still at it following uh, celestial navigation to, to get us from uh, among the different islands. And so we want to continue to bring that, that message out that islands have, have been around for, for millennia. There's lots of traditional knowledge and island wisdom here that will contribute to um, the sustainable development of the ocean, um, particularly in this decade. So we want to make sure that those voices are heard and um, that, that it's part of it. That's that's such a great point. I'm glad you brought that up, Austin, because it's the reframing. So it's it's going from you know small island states or small island developing states to calling them large ocean states. So it's not thinking that you're isolated because you lack land. It's that you're connected because you have the ocean. And I think that that's such a, a beautiful sentiment and way to think about things. And just that's what the decade is about, is turning how we've thought about the ocean in the past on its head from a scientific level to a, a cultural level and uh, really taking what what works and moving forward and growing and then uh, discarding the things that haven't worked in the past. Yeah, very true. And uh, so island uh, islands and islanders belong in this conversation for the UN Decade of Ocean Science for Sustainable Development. And um, I, I really am, am pleased to see that um, you as a, as a leader in the conversation about it and um, other leaders that I've met that are on the um, 
on the committees of such as um, uh, Craig McLean from from NOAA, who we we met at a, a past panel as well. That um, these are um, leaders that understand the importance of um, including islanders in the conversation for the decade. Um, we definitely belong there. Yeah, not only belong, but I think can be some of the the people leading the way and making sure that um, you know that the people who start out this decade are groups that then continue to grow and grow in not only uh, uh, you know number of people, but in their voices in the conversation. So I think one of the things that we've uh, talked around a little bit is. Uh, an underlying theme that I've seemed to notice in this first year of the decade and what I've tried to do through uh, this podcast is bringing more people to the table. And so maybe, Kate, why hasn't this happened in the past as much in Ocean Conversations? We talked a little bit before we got recording about how, uh, you know, the pandemic has been kind of a, a connection blessing in terms of more Zoom meetings and able to call in and join different things. But it's not just been about the time zones and things, you know? So why, why do, why has the global community kind of woken up to this care about including more people around the table? I think it's, I think it's a couple of things. And I think one of them is endless advocacy that is being ongoing. Um, one of the things I noticed living in um, DC and spending a lot of time in New York at the UN and working with different philanthropic organizations is I would often have a conversation that would go something like this. Why would islands care about the ocean? <laughs> that's, that's such a silly question. That's like asking why yeah, birds like, care about their wings. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a, it was quite, it was a surprisingly common one in the ocean community. And I think uh, that, really doesn't make sense. But anyway, the answer to that is always obviously that they live um, very close to the ocean, they interact, they manage it, etc. But I think the second uh, part of this is really the recognition that the global goals that relate to oceans are not going to be met without everyone kind of contributing. You know, we the SDGs kind of underlying thing is to leave no one behind. And we can't, because of someone's uh, size in terms of country, for example, it's one of the reasons why I, um, a particular group of islands were for a long time called small island developing states and seen in many ways as um, small and insignificant. You know, that even that framing kind of is very limiting. But I think there's been that with the switch and the articulation of their proper place in the world as large ocean states, as people who manage um, large swathes of the ocean, uh, that it, it's become more and more obvious that they need to be part of that and that the solutions that are developed shouldn't be things given to them. It should be either co-created or even adapted from what many of these islands are already doing or have the ideas to do but sometimes need a little bit of support from external, externally uh, to have happen. And I think that this focus, I think, more on the glass half full rather than the <laughs> empty glass might be a very powerful approach. And when you think about the fact that the decade is really has a very strong focus on strengthening connections and weaving partnerships between all of 
the communities working um, in this area, uh, we have a really big opportunity. And I think one of the other reasons why uh, people haven't been as connected as they may have before is that sometimes people don't know how to connect between things that are often global processes to local level community. It's something that we're working on also within our partnership. But it's really critical because if you look at somewhere like the Pacific, um, and I encourage people to look at the Pacific Ocean on Google Earth, because if you if you come out kind of as uh, to the point where you can see just ocean, you're really, really far. Um, the Pacific is so big that it's, it basically you can't takes comprehend up. It. An, yeah, you can't comprehend it. It takes up an entire kind of, um, I actually get quite obsessed with going in and out on the Pacific because just to see when I can see the edge of the United States and the edge of Australia. Google Earth um, is addictive in that way, and especially with the Pacific. <laughs> I'm like a thousand kilometers out and I can only just see the edges of, um, anyway, uh, that's an aside, very addictive, but I encourage people to do that because you're basically, and then you've basically got these tiny islands managing huge parts of the ocean and also both in terms of their um, exclusive economic zones but also what happens in the high seas so uh this is an important issue for islands there's like absolutely no doubt um and i think what's happened previously is you have a kind of group of people that move in i i guess the ocean circles the ocean community circles and you will see them at every international meeting but that isn't necessarily allowing the space for people who can't travel to international meetings or international spaces um, so it's really important i think one of the important things that being on zoom a lot more has done is it brings those voices into the room so you're not uh you can actually enable someone for example in Papua New Guinea or in Guam or wherever to take part in these things and there are um or in the Philippines which we've been having a lot of um interaction with mayors in the Philippines for example who are not going to travel to um, the US or Europe but who can take part in things um virtually and so we need to find a way as we come out of COVID to still enable those voices and to try and have that mix. But also I think Austin's point earlier is really important to look at science in all of its, um, in all of its meaning, including indigenous um, science and the importance of those ways of thinking and being um, and different perspectives. And when you only have um, people kind of from one part of the world or a particular type of experience, then you, you're not capturing kind of all the challenges, all the solutions uh, and all of the kind of opportunities that are out there for people to make a difference in their own space. And you lose, yeah, some of that richness in thinking about how do you look at an issue? If you look at, you know, uh, if you try to judge a fish by its ability to ride a bicycle, it's not going to do very well. But if you know what a fish is and know that it's supposed to swim and look at it from that perspective, it's a totally different, my like high school English teacher had that poster. And I think about it way too much for, I know I was a fishery scientist, but still like fishes and bicycles, I think about it way too much, but it's just like, it, it helps me think about, you know, there's lots of different ways to evaluate things. And if you're lacking those perspectives, then you're not going to have a successful effort at all. And we won't have a successful decade without bringing in these other voices. And I think that 
what you both are doing, you have some great initiatives that you're that you're working on that I want to give you each some time to uh, to talk more about that. That I think uh, are natural fits for uh, you know including these voices and including these uh, island based solutions, you know, co created solutions or created solutions into the next decade. So, uh, Kate, maybe you can give us the whole islands perspective and then Austin, you can give us some of the examples of some of the work you're doing with the, uh, us islands. Yeah, I think Austin and I also work together. So on a few different things, including, uh, the thing that I've been working on really since 2006, but I was a staff member since 2009. So it's kind of a life mission, I think we could call it now, which is the Global Island Partnership, which you referred to earlier. But that was actually founded uh, by President Romengasau of Palau, who's now um, uh, retired, and the former president of the Seychelles back in 2006, with the idea of uh, bringing islands together regardless of their political status. So it was kind of the first space where we start working with um, not just, I'm going to call them small island developing states in the UN sense, not just with um, a specific grouping who are kind of been working together for quite a long time, but all islands um, very much, as you referred to, almost most of the world has islands. So it was really opening up the, the world's islands. And we really started looking at how do we support implementation of global policy that relates to islands? Because at the time we were founded, there was real frustration with amazing policy being developed, but lack of implementation at island level. And so the people that founded GLISPA wanted to see that happen. And our idea of how to do that was really around um, increasing political will. So really working on the bit about mobilizing high level political will and commitments to do something, it was initially on conservation and we broadened into more looking at resilience and sustainability um, as time went on, that the partnership really needed to enable islands to um, develop partnerships themselves. So we are in many ways a network and partner partnership uh, incubator and supporter. Um, and you'll hear some of those, I think, from Austin, and I'll refer to one in a little bit of time. And then um, helping our members and um, the University of Guam as a member of the Global Island Partnership really to strategize and bring global attention and support to island issues. So that's very much, you know, in sync with what we're talking about today. And that's really been the focus of GLISPA since we were founded in 2006. Um, I think that we have catalyzed a lot of things as a partnership and had uh, quite a big impact. But um, in 2019, we decided actually to start another network, uh, mostly because GLISPA has members and has a kind of a broader mandate. And this network we started together with one of our members, which was Hawaii Green Growth, um, was is focused specifically on implementing the sustainable development goals. So we have another network in GLISPA called Local 2030 Islands Network. Um, we're the co-secretariat co of it. Uh, and that one is really the world's first global island-led network that is trying to advance the SDGs, really looking at bottom-up rather than top-down. So the SDGs, obviously, the global goals are developed um, at the United Nations through, through that prescriptive level yeah, yeah. through member states so 
if we remember the idea of how to Im- make implementation, how to support implementation at island level, really it's thinking, it's looking at how it's more of a bottom up process. And our idea on that, based on kind of years of working in the space, is that there's really four key things that islands need to do if they join that network. Um, and it's a much more um, narrowly focused uh, network than kind of the whole of GLISPA. But I think in terms of our work over the next 10 years, we'll probably um, we'll put a lot of effort into it because it's there's four principles that islands sign up to as part of the Local 2030 Islands Network. That's that they will mobilise political we- leadership. So you see that we continue that strand and I think still really important um, for policy change. Yeah, that constant advocacy and that islands kind of have to be their own best advocates because in the past, you know, other people haven't included them in the conversation like you and Austin have both been, been saying. Yeah, and this political leadership is also in, in their own island so that policies can be implemented so that resources can be um, directed towards the effort. And then the second part of that is really some type of local entity, a public-private partnership that can continue to support um, this work outside of the political cycle. So, you know, like short-term political cycles make long-term things, which this is a long-term thing. It makes the 2030, yeah. Tough. Very no difficult. one's going to be surveying in 2030. Hopefully. Yes, exactly. So we, you need to have something locally that is has that role. Um, and then thirdly, that the islands that are part of the network would develop their own local, locally and culturally relevant goals. So that go upwards, not come downwards from um, the international level. And then we help to kind of bring those two spaces together. Uh, And I think one of the most exciting parts of that is that um, they're articulating those goals in uh, dashboards, so in terms of measures. And so if you go on um, the Hawaii governor's website, you'll actually see something called the Aloha Plus Challenge dashboard, and you'll see how they're measuring um, what they've said are their sustainability priorities, including on oceans. Um, and this is where we see, instead of single sectoral issues being dealt with, things coming together. And I really actually want to acknowledge Guam and um, Austin and uh, the governor and lieutenant governor of Guam, who were really early um, members of this network and their thought leadership into it. Um, Austin can talk a little bit about how they've articulated that in Guam. But I think um, that's really exciting. And then uh, the final thing is that it results in like actual projects on the ground, that there is some measurable and that measures part is there change that's actually happening in Ireland. So we're not just talking about things at the international level. Yeah, so this is a very local space. But I think the exciting thing about this network is it was actually one of the um, announcements made by the U.S. during the Biden Climate Summit in April. So uh, the U.S. government is supporting uh, this network as we continue to scale it up. And their idea in that is that they're taking the best of what the U.S. has to offer on this space, which is in its islands. It's in Hawaii, it's in Guam, it's in Puerto Rico, to the rest of the islands of the world. And I think that's a really exciting and different way uh, that we are kind of seeing the next seven to 10 years. 
Yeah, and that's a different way of the U.S. showing leadership, I think, than than we've done in the past. So, Austin, could you talk a little bit about uh, the Guam applications of of some of this work and how you've all been successful going toward 2030? Sure, can do. Thank you to uh, to Kate and uh, the Global Island Partnership and the Local 2030 Islands Network for inviting Guam to uh, be part of their incredible networks. Um, when we um, received the, the invitation here in Guam to become a founding member of the, the Local 2030 Islands Network at uh, the 2019 UN General Assembly, uh, our leaders here really saw it as an amazing opportunity to demonstrate how um, Guam really is at the forefront of leadership in, in island sustainability. I'm sorry, in island sustainability. And so we had um, our governor and uh, Lou Leon Guerrero and Lieutenant Governor Joshua Tenorio say yes to that. And uh, we, we joined this network and we have been following those principles um, that Kate mentioned. And so that puts us, um, uh, that, that allows us to, um, to coordinate with islands around the world, um, with our first with our own local actions, and uh, we do it together with the islands around the world to have global impact. So our local um, uh, local action for global impact is through our Guam Green Growth Initiative, um, which is uh, now in place. Well, that's a Guam Green Growth Initiative. We we uh, uh, do shorten it to G three. Uh, oh, so that's go. a bit that's, simpler. Yeah. There, there we go. go. So we got G three, and um, uh, our our governor wrote this um, executive order and assigned uh, nearly a hundred members representing all sectors of our society to work on all seventeen of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And now we have um, clusters of these different categories of actions. Uh, a, a framework, uh, the G three action framework, was uh, developed and formally adopted. And so now we have these hundreds of goals and action items and all the leads identified. And, and those things are, are all underway. And actually next week we have our second biannual meeting to, to see how we're doing in this progress. And one of the cool things that um, Hawaii Green Growth and uh, the local 2030 Islands Network shared with us was um, how we how, uh, was a method to track all of this progress through uh, a dashboard. So we now have an online dashboard powered by um, Esri, the G3 dashboard, where you can see all of these um, things getting tracked in, in real time um, over our um, our decade towards uh, 2030. Um, so there's all different types of, uh, of activities happening and uh, quite a bit happening for um, the, the ocean decade and climate action, life below water um, that are happening now. That's really fascinating. I think the the applications of the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, uh, on such you know a concrete basis. Is there anywhere else in the world that's doing something like that? That is you know has a government official that signed an executive order and done this sort of work, or is Guam really unique in this? Well, I think Kate has a few examples of uh, of that. Um, Hawaii has done it. We've been taking the lead, and there um, there there are quite a few island leaders that are taking. Um, some form of this, but um, I, I think he can talk more about the invitations that are going out um, to other islands to create their own very comprehensive action framework like um, we now have in Guam uh, to create our sustainable future. Uh, yes, the uh, early adopters of that type of approach are in fact all members of Local 2030 Islands Network. So Hawaii, Hawaii actually 
is uh, really advanced in the space and is a, I think it was, it, it's often used as an example for the US. They actually have produced um, a voluntary local review, which is where Guam will also, what Guam will also be able to do as it advances with, with its dashboard. So the voluntary local review is similar to the idea of voluntary national reviews because the SDGs are uh, every country in the world needs to um, implement them and needs to report. And so annually different groups of countries report on their progress. And last year, because of their dashboard and their measures approach and the, all the local level stuff that has actually happened, Hawaii was able to produce its own uh, version the first time in the world for a um, island to do a vote voluntary local review. So that's really exciting. And you can start to see that islands are both reporting, obviously, out to the UN, but also any citizen in, in an island can tell what their island is actually doing, where it's doing well and where it's not doing well, and make much more better informed decisions um, about what they do. And that's such a, a fantastic, you know, outcome of this local thirty, local twenty thirty islands network, and such. Uh, I don't know. It's, that just really inspires me as a way that you're kind of living out the SDGs and applying them to management and policy, and you know, the the local twenty thirty timeframe aligns well with the Ocean Decade timeframe. So you're kind of <laughs> hitting two birds with one stone there in terms of. Uh, making those applications. And I think, Austin, that's part of the reason why it's been so easy for you and your role to, you know, be both uh, a local 2030 advocate and, and a G3 advocate, and then transition easily into talking about, uh, about islands in this ocean decade space. Yes, absolutely. And uh, we get lots of support from um, Kate at CLISPA and um, Celeste Connors over at um, Hawaii Green Growth Local 2030 Hub. But um, we, we just want to... Uh, make sure that we're, we're working together, as I mentioned earlier, um, on our local actions to, to roll that up together for, for global impact and really show that islands are, are bright spots for creating a sustainable future um, that, uh, that we're happy to be part of. That's fantastic. And I know we've been talking a lot about uh, dashboards and making progress, but something I want to, uh, you know, not go back to the, to the doom and gloom, but thinking about what are some really significant issues that large ocean states and these islands are going to face over the next decade. So what are things that uh, are going to have to be addressed on a local basis, a regional basis, and then a, a global basis in order to uh, have help these islands address climate change and other uh, significant issues that they're facing? Yeah. So I think for the next few years, a lot of, a lot of islands will be focused on the COVID recovery process because the impacts of COVID are still happening in some places. Uh, Grenada has very high rate right now of COVID and a few other places in the Caribbean in particular that reopened to uh, tourism are having um, problematic outbreaks. And then we also see that in the Pacific, in French Polynesia and uh, Fiji, which have both had about 500 deaths uh, each. That's a lot of people in a uh, in a small place, and I think um, so. That's one thing. It's one thing is dealing with the medical emergency that is COVID, and that is ongoing right now, and it will be ongoing um, for quite some time. Uh, somewhere like New Zealand, we're not open to anyone 
easily. You cannot come to New Zealand at the moment. So we're kind of a little bit isolated from the world. Uh, and so a lot of the things that we might have thought of that we could do um, in this period of time in the, you know, the last 10 years before 2030, we've got to kind of rethink. But at the same time, what we do see is that some islands are rethinking the type of tourism that they want to have because many islands are uh, tourism dependent uh, and often in a way that is has a negative impact on local people. So this is kind of thinking about how to create a tourism economy that doesn't do that, doesn't have a negative impact on uh, the both the destination but and also the people that live there. So I think we'll, for the next few years there will be a large economic recovery element to whatever large ocean states are doing um, and really trying to um, move past this uh, terrible scourge that we've had for the last one and a half years. And then I think the other thing that's happening at the same time, obviously, is the how they build resilience uh, in the face of kind of increasing impacts of climate change. And, you know, in the last month or so, I think we've all been kind of watching some of those impacts, not on islands, um, but in, for example, New York, in the United States with fires all over the all over the world. Um, there's just an increasing amount of those things happening. And when you look at an island setting, which has much less capacity um, to deal with some of those issues, the issue of building resilience of um, to that is really important. Uh, it'll be really interesting, I think, one of the big issues moving forward will be around food security, um, particularly when we see kind of ongoing impact on the ocean of both overfishing and climate change, um, reducing available food for particularly coastal communities in islands. Um, that will be um, thing. And then we also know that there's a continuing acceleration of biodiversity loss and what implications that has for all sorts of things. And then obviously um, issues around plastic and pollution and um, land-based sources of marine pollution, all these issues are real, really big issues in an island context. So there has been a bit of a focus in, um, in dialogue about uh, the idea of building back better, and that was kind of before before that became a uh, Joe Biden campaign slogan. A campaign slogan, so it's yeah. Made it a little <laughs> bit more difficult to use. <laughs> Build back bluer, yes, exactly. Which still has a little bit of the political connotation, exactly. <laughs> and then we also see um, in donor countries, so um, in some of the big places that are contributing donors to um, other. To island regions, for example, in the European Union, in the UK, in those um, places that you see as they articulate both what they plan to do in Europe and the UK, but also um, what their aid moving forward looks like, and, and these are really important in many places, that there is a real emphasis on a green recovery, so that things are being really seen through that. So I think, you know, a lot of things are really uncertain at the moment because we don't, we haven't ended COVID. Um, now we're, we're not, not done. done yeah. <laughs> so even a lot of places we work with, we have to sort of couch things in, you know, if you can pay attention to this while you're having a kind of COVID emergency. Um, and, and then I do think that um, 
kind of trying to avoid that in the future. Um, this happening as it is in the future will be a really important part of things as we move forward. But um, I think the big challenges for a lot of large ocean states are the financial resources to actually do things. So, you know, the economic situation from money that they can mobilize themselves is going to be severely impacted by COVID. Um, a lot of places where they would traditionally get resources to do things, hopefully um, not impacted by COVID. And then also what has been, I think, a really big issue is uh, the um, people that send money back that work in other countries back to their islands. And I'm not sure in, in Guam, but that is a major part of many island economies um, in, a, in a more informal sense. And um, with contracting economies in um, some of these places like Australia and New Zealand, I, you know, I really have been wondering what that is looking like um, as you get back out into the islands. You know, a lot of the safety nets are uh, shrinking, um, and so when that, when those sorts of things happen, um, it can also mean, you know, you've got to kind of get through the immediate emergency, but it can also mean that you can um, rethink a lot of the approaches moving forward so that they better suit your own context. And so it's really thinking about whether that is also an opportunity, a terrible situation, but also um, an opportunity. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly it. And and so kind of shifting this a little bit in Austin for you, um, how how do you think that, you know, some of these initiatives that you've you've talked about and the role of large ocean states uh, and the work that large ocean states are doing can leverage the attention and the focus that the ocean decade is placing on the ocean? Uh, to achieve some of these goals and to reach uh, some of these 2030 goals in building back bluer and uh, making these uh, island nations, you know, uh, key players in ocean decade discussions going forward? I think there are um, a couple ways to do that. Um, we need uh, to make sure that uh, the voices are included from islanders, um, like we talked about earlier. Uh, but I also think that. Um, uh, we need a lot more focus on uh, the bright spots that islands do have to show the rest of the world. And so we're not um, just sitting by while we are waiting for um, somebody to come save us one day. Uh, we have things that we are working on right now to improve our resilience to um, th these climate change impacts that um, that Kate has mentioned and all of the, the impacts that we're seeing from COVID today. But, uh, and you mentioned this too, um, Taylor, that we have uh, lots of disproportionate impacts here um, in the islands with the, the brunt of climate change affecting us with the severe storms and droughts and flooding and coral bleaching. Uh, in fact, Guam lost a third of our coral reefs in recent years. Um, but we do have a few projects um, that are underway now through our, our Guam Green Growth Initiative. Now that we have our community mobilized, we're, we're doing things like uh, addressing our, our waste issues. Like we have an over-reliance on imports and an overproduction on waste. So uh, one thing that we are um, just about ready to open when our COVID restrictions ease just a little bit and we can allow more people into the space is a new um, Guam Green Growth Circular Economy Makerspace and Innovation Hub. Um, so while we're trying to shift away from the reliance on uh, tourism dollars, we're hoping that we can take some of these things that are traditionally waste products and turn them into new marketable products. And we would do that 
um, by using things like CNC routers, laser cutters, uh, 3D printers, uh, lots of hand tools and saws and things like that to take discarded lumber or um, discarded plastics and turn them into new products that we can sell in this um, business incubator space in the G3 store and hopefully stimulate new um, green industries for the island. Um, and, and so that's just uh, one thing. We also have a brand new uh, G3 Conservation Corps with uh, full-time members that are now out in the community getting workforce development training to prepare for the emerging green economy. So they're learning agriculture and aquaculture. They're removing invasive species. This week, they're installing hundreds of solar panels on top of uh, one of our public schools. And, um, you know, that, that's a, a really important area for the, the emerging green economy. Guam has a 100% renewable energy law by 2045. So we're going to have a big push to, to move that direction. And finally, just to, to um, touch back on, uh, circle back to Kate's point about food security, we're, we're working on that with increased agriculture and, uh, and aquaculture. And we also just uh, started a new community garden right in the capital village of the island. So um, everybody can, can see this um, green beacon of hope and hopefully this idea will spread out into um, the other villages with the new G3 community garden. I think that's awesome. And one of the big things that I took from that, especially with the job training and things, is that people don't have to leave the island to get that sort of education and that sort of training, that it's something that can be a homegrown you know, training opportunity and that uh, you don't have to rely on other places or, you know, going somewhere else that you can develop those skills and develop that workforce uh, internally. Uh, Yes, absolutely. Um, We are, we're going to do everything that we can to to be better prepared for um, these new opportunities and to create opportunities to have uh, uh, an economic recovery uh, that is better for the island and uh, can create our sustainable future so that we're less reliant on these outside disruptive forces and um, to be a little more um, sustainable. That's fantastic. Um, in We've gone over so many fantastic things uh, during this episode, and I'm going to broaden us back and take us back a little bit. And so thinking, uh, I asked this to all of my guests, and I love hearing all the different answers. Um, speaking of the ocean decade overall here, uh, reaching 2030 and then looking back, uh, for each of you, what would be a quote-unquote successful decade? Kate, you can go first. Wow, that's an easy question. <laughs> I know. I mean, Yeah, I like ending with that one because it's really, you've already used all your brain power during the whole hour, and then <laughs> I give you a nice, big, juicy one to end with. <laughs> awesome. Uh, I think what I think is that every... Every island um, that wants to has created is part of Local 2030 has a workable dashboard and set of measures that they're tracking and has projects on the ground actually being implemented. So it's that we're actually implementing this uh, network across the world. And so I see no reason why we can't get there. That's awesome. To do that, it's, it's huge. But it's possible. It's huge, but it's possible, and that's what the local 2030, you know, is is aiming for. And the Ocean Decade, I think, can really help uh, you all continue that that great work. Um, Austin, same question to you. What does a successful Ocean Decade look like to you? It is a big question. So right now, I feel like um, we are driving down a mountain, and we are coming towards a cliff. 
And if we go over that cliff uh, in a vehicle, no matter how much you pump your brakes, once you go over the cliff, you're not going to stop. So I want to see before 2030 that we have stopped the vehicle and we have turned around and we're going back up that mountain. And uh, that's where I want to see the the ocean decade take us, that we're, we're truly get it. The, the world gets it, that we need to turn this planet around um, and have uh, lots and lots of blue growth to complement our green growth uh, and have the ocean support the planet uh, for generations to come. I think uh, just to add on that, I think the bigger picture is that we have global agreements on climate, on oceans, on plastic, you know, that and those are being implemented. But the reality is that we that for that implementation to happen, it's going to take all of us. So I think that's kind of how we're going to get there. So I I think that we need to not get in our own way to some extent. That's the hardest thing for us as humans to do, I think. Mm, Yeah. And be, have a vision and a dream and then try and build the coalitions that will help us get there. And I think that our biggest mistake in anything is trying to do things alone. Um, we'll go much further by working together. Yeah, I think you both, that's a great, you know, kind of sentiment. And that's what you're all doing so well with these island networks that you're creating, that you're using the ocean connectivity to bring all these large ocean states together. And I think that uh, other people working on the ocean decade can learn a lot from the way that not only large ocean states are, are doing business, but uh, both you, Kate and Austin in particular. So thank you so much for, uh, teaching me some lessons and uh, letting us know a little bit more about how um, to answer that kind of stupid question, Kate, that you've been asked too many times that why large ocean states care about the ocean. But I'm glad we were able to go around that in a, in a really uh, deep way and get into some of these great initiatives that uh, you all are working on. So where can we go before we go? Where can we go to learn more about Guam Green Growth? Uh, I almost tried to say that three times fast. Uh, Local 2030, GLISPA, where uh, where can we learn more about these efforts? Well, uh, check out our University of Guam Center for Island Sustainability page, and you'll have links to um, guamgreengrowth.org from there. Um, but if you just Google either one of our, our organizations, EOG Center for Island Sustainability and Guam Green Growth, um, you'll be able to find all the information about the, the efforts that we're undertaking now. And ours are really easy. Um, Glisper is www.glisper.org. And actually, we're updating our website. So uh, that's still happening. And then uh, Local 2030 is even easier. It's islands2030.org. You guys got some good um, <laughs> some good URLs, so it's really intuitive for people to find. Thank you so much again for joining me. I can't wait to have you both back on uh, to hear about progress of these uh, amazing initiatives and this great work, and that we look back uh, from 2030 and see the leaders like you bringing the large ocean states uh, to the forefront of the Ocean Decade conversation. So thank you so much for joining me, and uh, we'll see you all next month. Yeah.